The views and opinions expressed on today's show are solely those of the individuals speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the American Solidarity Party. The official party platform can be found under the About Us page on the American Solidarity Party website, solidarity-party.org. You're listening to The Pelican Brief, the official podcast of the American Solidarity Party, a show dedicated to promoting the common good on common ground through common sense. I'm your host, Bill Fleming. My guest today is Chris Butler. Chris is a pastor, community organizer, and co-founder of the AND Campaign. Chris is running against incumbent Bobby Rush in Illinois' 1st Congressional District. Today, Chris joins me to discuss his campaign and what he hopes to accomplish as a member of the House of Representatives. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with you? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I am obviously running for Congress here in Illinois. I'm a pastor. I've been pastoring the uh, last five years, the church where I grew up. Um, I'm a husband to a very, very wonderful wife and father to five beautiful little children, one of whom is just two weeks old today. And I've been uh, in and around uh, sort of civic engagement and community work virtually all my life. I got involved when I was 12 years old uh, and have stayed involved uh, all this time organizing with students and seniors on education, on voting, on health care, uh, most recently uh, organizing Christians in urban centers around uh, the country to get involved in civics and politics in a faithful way through the AND campaign. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, this is my life, my family, my faith, um, and bringing the, the heart for those who are, you know, sort of on on the margins in our society to to, to bear in the civic and, and political space. Can you speak a little bit about what motivated you to run for Congress? Yeah, I mean, it's really that, that same uh, biography, Bill. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's the idea of being a person who is involved in sort of civic work at the community level, being a, a person who has a family, uh, is involved with a family, engages with lots and lots of families in the community, uh, and just seeing how more and more our government is leaving families and communities behind, even when sort of a lot of the, the lip service may suggest that we'd be doing a lot more, but the, on, on the practical level, the concrete things that are happening in people's lives every day, we're just not seeing the type of progress and commitment to these family and community issues uh, that we need to see. Uh, and as and as I see government and even the, the party uh, that I've worked in, that I'm running in, uh, which is the Democratic Party, continue to step away from these communities uh, and our families, it, it burdens me so that I felt compelled uh, to jump into this race. How has your experience both as a pastor and community organizer prepared you to serve in Congress? You know, when I think about what the role of a United States Congress person should be, it really has to be about being an advocate for people. And 
Uh, when you work as a pastor, when you work as a community organizer, one of the things that you have to learn to do is to go to people, to live among people, to listen to people, and to engage deeply with folks' concerns and their stories, and then to take those concerns and those stories and, and begin to shape policy based on that um, and to advocate in different environments. Uh, here, you're talking about the United States Congress, but to advocate in, in a lot of different environments uh, based on the, the needs that people have, the pains that folks are experiencing in their everyday lives. And so I've been doing that since I was 12 years old engaging with people, listening to stories, identifying pain uh, points and areas of suffering, and then figuring out ways to, to advocate on those issues and to empower people to advocate uh, even on their own behalf. So I think that's what Congress should be about. It's not in our time always what it is about, but I think that's what you got to be able to do uh, in Congress. And I think I've lived a life and come along in a way that makes me really ready to do that. So as a pastor, how would you approach the issue of managing our current public health crisis, specifically as it relates to balancing conscience exemptions and the need to reach sufficient vaccination rates nationally in order to protect the most vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, first thing that I would say is that, you know, through the very end of one administration and the beginning uh, of another, we have worked through a very difficult time and a very difficult challenge uh, in terms of this pandemic. And as a country, we have certainly had some difficulties, but we have demonstrated a, a profound uh, sort of capacity here, right? We have developed this vaccine. We've distributed vaccine. We have done a lot of different things throughout the country to, to manage this place. And so I think it's very important for us to uh, look at where we are versus where we've been, because we're in a place now where we are reaching high levels of vaccination uh, in many, many communities. We don't know what the, the fall is going to bring in the winter, uh, but we certainly know that we live in a world right now where there is a vaccine that is effective uh, and that is available and that does significantly diminish uh, the likelihood of severe illness and death. And so we should, we should embrace that idea. Uh, and as we move toward this new challenge, which I think is more about how do we begin to build out the future for the United States? How do we begin to recover our economy? How do we begin to get our, our schools uh, and our social lives back on a on a rhythm, uh, sort of a normalized rhythm. Uh, that's the priority. And so for me, I think a, a lot of what we have to do there uh, is, is focus on how do we build uh, this, this future that we need. I, I think the way that we get to that is by embracing where we are, which is we, we're in a spot where we have vaccine. It's freely and publicly available. Uh, we've got a lot of therapeutics. More uh, are coming to market even right now. Uh, and so when we talk about balancing this sort of like exemption, uh, at this point, I think that it's much more urgent that we continue to, to push forward toward normalcy. So I know education is an incredibly important issue to you. You've worked as the deputy campaign manager at A Plus Illinois and advocacy director for New School Chicago and helped found 
proud parent Chicago. Given your history of education advocacy and your experience working to reform education locally, what specific education reforms would you like to see made at the federal level? And how will these reforms empower parents and local communities to help their children succeed? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the question is great because I think that's exactly what we have to do at the federal level is find more and more ways to empower families, to empower parents, to be the chief advocate for their uh, students. Uh, some of the things I think the federal government could do that it has not done would be, you know, one, to create incentives at the federal level for school districts and schools to bring parents much more into the process to help parents to become involved, to empower parents to, you know, in terms of giving them the resources that they need. So I, I helped launch an organization called Parent Power Chicago that was 100% focused on uh, making sure that parents had access to the resources, uh, skills, and information that they needed to become uh, very effective advocates for their children. I think that in a situation right now, Bill, where we need a lot of uh, emphasis on improving the quality of outcomes of our education system. And I think that maybe the most impactful and, and probably efficient cost of intervention that we could have is actually strengthening families and parents. And that's, that's everything from advocating for students in terms of where they go to school, how they go to school, when they go to school, what the resources are that they interact with when they're not in school. All these things are going to be best determined the closer you get to that student and you don't get closer than in the family. So I'm fond of saying, you know, that the the most important door that a kid walks through on a daily basis uh, when it comes to education is actually not the door uh, of a school or classroom, but actually the door of their home. Uh, and so if we can empower families and make sure that homes have the resources, the, the information, the skill sets that are needed to become the best advocates, that's how we're going to start to drive much better outcomes in education. And I think that the federal government could be doing a lot better job of incentivizing that sort of family-centered approach to education. You've been critical of the imbalance in the economy, specifically how the bulk of economic returns go to those at the top of the economic ladder, while the rest of us are forced to settle for what you've described as sporadic aid and temporary fixes. Can you give some examples of what you mean specifically and how you would approach addressing disparities related to income and wealth inequality? Absolutely. It just so happens that we're recording the podcast on the same day where the uh, current version of the Build Back Better Act uh, has just passed the House of Representatives. While I know that I'm supposed to be, as a Democrat, extremely jubilant because it passed the House, frankly, I am not. I think that this particular vote represents the kind of thing that I'm describing when I talk about sporadic aid and temporary fixes. You have something, for instance, like the child tax credit prepayments that were instituted originally as COVID aid. They were held as something that could be somewhat transformational, bringing child poverty down by as much as 50%. We had an opportunity here, and the goal at the beginning of this Build Back Better process was to make that payment permanent. Instead of making it permanent, the bill extends it for one year, which frankly is going to leave it in the hands of what will likely be a GOP-controlled Congress in a non-election year to extend that credit. Uh, it puts the credit uh, at extreme jeopardy. That is, it's sporadic. 
It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Similar things uh, there when it comes to the original goal of making community college universal and free to everyone in the United States. Instead of that, we get $500 bump in Pell Grants. It is, it is not enough. And on and on I could go in this bill throughout the legislative session. You know, a lot of us are concerned with violence in communities, especially across the district where I serve. Uh, people are becoming more and more concerned uh, about just safety in their communities. We need to be investing in community safety. We need to be investing in professionalizing police work. But rather than doing serious conversations on that type of thing, it's acceptable only to put on a kente cloth and take a knee in the Capitol Rotunda. This stuff, uh, it is half measure. It is signaling and it leaves working class folks holding the bag. And those same types of things, those are the types of things I think do begin to balance the economy. Uh, if we actually do, instead of just you know, talking about something like the PRO Act, right? Like you actually pass it, you actually strengthen the ability of workers to form labor unions and those in labor unions to actually act without being crushed by their companies. It's, it's just bringing balance back to this thing, right? When you think about those child tax credit payments, that sort of universal basic floor when it comes to income can begin to turn things back. Our taxing structures and taxing systems could begin to turn things back in the, in the right direction. When we started with Build Back Better, we were talking about maybe closing the carried interest loophole, maybe doing something about the step-up basis that allows a lifetime of wealth creation to go untaxed. In, instead, we, we get none of those things. You're actually going to see the SALT taxes in this bill, the, remove the cap on that SALT tax exemption, uh, in the vote that we took this morning, uh, which is a $400 billion tax break for the, for the wealthiest top 5% of, of households in the country. And, and you, you, you probably can tell that this is, the, this is one of the issues that, that really uh, sort of stirs my pot because over and over again, we see policies come through that are supposed to or are messaged as something that's going to be transformational uh, for working class people. And they are really not designed in a way that it will be transformational. And that serves to diminish the hope of people uh, in what we can actually do through Congress and what we can do through government. That's a huge shot to our democracy when people begin to give up on the capacity of, of government to help. The incumbent who you're challenging, Congressman Bobby Rush, uh, made a name for himself during the civil rights movement by participating in civil disobedience in the 1960s, and he co-founded the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in 1968. Uh, while he hasn't repudiated his involvement in the Black Panther Party, he has certainly moderated uh, his positions on issues related to race, policing, and firearms. What would you say are the biggest differences between yourself and Congressman Rush when it comes to addressing the racial tension both in Chicago and in the nation? And if elected to Congress, how would you use your influence and office to advance racial reconciliation efforts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the I would say the biggest difference is going to be when and where you say the things that need to be said. As a, a member of Congress, I think there is a burden and a responsibility to legislate. There is also a burden and a responsibility to lead. And leadership often has to do with speaking out in the right times. And we have seen some things that, that would probably be similar, where it's 
easy to speak out on issues because these things that need to be said, and I'm not saying that they don't need to be said, they're things that need to be said, but they're things that people sort of in your party and in your political tribe, the the party leaders, the party donors, they want you to say something about it. And that's good to say things if they need to be said when people agree. The difficult part is when the sort of Twitterverse and the party donors and the party leaders are pushing a slightly different narrative and you know that you need to speak up and express what is needful and even what is believed in the communities that you are trying to represent or that you are elected to represent. Uh, will you step up and say forcefully, and I'm talking before you, you lose an election and it starts to become an, a question and the party starts to move. But when it's, when it's really on the line, will you stand up and be vocally in support of you know, local police departments? Uh, will you step up and say racial tension is never going to be a good ending place for us in the United States? Uh, we need to be discussing reconciliation. So it's about being able to not just critique and criticize the other side, which we need to be able to critique and criticize uh, folks on the other side of the aisle, folks on the other end of the ideological spectrum. But can you critique and criticize your own crowd, your own party, your own ideological tribe? I don't think that we've seen a real willingness to do that. And that's sort of how I built my politics. Uh, It's how I approach things. Um, And I think that it will be very important when it comes to using the platforms that are available to a member of Congress to actually move forward issues of reconciliation uh, is going to be, you know, having that kind of capacity. The seat that you're running for, like many throughout the country, is a very safe seat. Um, Bobby Rush has held the seat for nearly 30 years and usually wins with a 50 to 70 percent margin. His successor will almost certainly be a Democrat. And one could argue that because of gerrymandering, the general election is immaterial in terms of who will actually go to Congress to represent the first district, and that the primary is really what matters. Gerrymandering, though, is only one part of the problem. What reforms would you support to the current electoral system to make our system more democratic? Yeah, so I support it. One, uh, done a lot of work in trying to change the way we uh, draw districts uh, in the state of Illinois in the United States of America because gerrymandering is only one part of the issue, but it is a significant part of the issue. And you really need to see more people, especially those, you know, like the incumbent in this race who are in safe seats and who are in states that are controlled by their own party. Those are the people who need to have the courage, Bill, to actually step up and say something about gerrymandering because, again, it is easy. To, to criticize gerrymandering when you are the part of the, the party that's out of power. But wrong is wrong, whether it's your side that's doing it or the other side that's doing it. Wrong is wrong, uh, and you need leaders with the courage to stand up and say that wrong is wrong, even when that critique has been leveraged against your own tribe. Beyond gerrymandering, though, you have issues around how we fund elections, where we need to be getting a lot of the, 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 the big money and corporate interests out of our politics. You have issues with, you know, sort of how we structure our elections, thinking about things like 
open primaries and ranked choice voting and things that begin to deliver power back to people at the grassroots level instead of concentrating it in the hands of corporations and party bosses and, and all these different entities that sort of control our elections and because of that constrict what can actually happen in our politics. At its core, democratic republicanism, talking about just like as a form of government, right, is it is very dynamic and very empowering of people at the grassroots level. But our system at this point has been increasingly controlled by these powerful and often wealthy interests. And we have to begin to deliver more power back to people at the grassroots so that dynamic, rich nature of what our democracy should look like uh, begins to return to the democracy really before it's too late and too many people walk away from believing in, in this system. And, and, we, and we're unable at that point to sustain it. Partisanship runs rampant throughout our system, and we can anticipate that most senators and representatives will just toe the party line 98% of the time. What do you think that you can offer the voters of Illinois' first district that another Democrat cannot when it so often feels like Congress people of the same party are interchangeable? So I talked about it a little bit already, but the ability, maybe the most important ability that you need in an elected representative right now is the willingness and capacity to critique and criticize one's own party and one's own tribe. Anybody living in the first congressional district, and as you said, it's a very safe seat. A lot of the folks who live in the first congressional district vote Democratic, but anybody living in the first congressional district, you can go to them and you ask them if they believe that the the agenda and the priorities of the National Democratic Party are 100% aligned with the needs of the people in the first congressional district. The vast, vast majority of those folks are going to tell you no. And so what that means is you need a representative who is going to prioritize the needs and the values and the concerns of the community above the needs and wants of the political party. Does that mean that you always have to be against the party? No. I've been working in democratic politics in one way or another since I was a, a kid. I like being a Democrat. A lot of folks in my family are Democrats, and it's where I've spent my career. I like being a Democrat. But being a Democrat does not mean that you cannot critique the Democratic Party. Being a Democrat does not mean that you cannot call out the Democratic Party when the things that the party is doing do not help the district and the communities that you represent. And so this is one of the significant, significant deficits that I think we have in Congress today. It is one of the significant, significant deficits that we have here in the first congressional district in terms of, of the representative who is representing us currently in Congress. And it is critical to the long-term flourishing of the first congressional district, and I would argue the United States of America, that we begin to get folks in office who can and will challenge our own parties, our own tribes. And it's not just Democrats, right? Like you need Republicans who can do the same thing. But I could sit here and, and, and criticize Republicans all day. And maybe we'll come on another podcast, Bill, and I'll make that my Criticize Republicans podcast. But because of the way it's working right now, because of all the gerrymandering and these things, 
that is not the most important capacity. Anybody can criticize the other side. Do you have the the moral imagination and the depth of conviction when it comes to what you believe to actually criticize and challenge your own tribe? That is the way we're going to begin to come together, actually, in this country and in this district and move forward. I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak directly to the voters of the 1st Congressional District. If you had the opportunity to speak with each of them one-on-one, what would you want them to know? I want them to know that it is actually possible for government to do things that will truly improve your life in concrete ways. A lot of stuff has happened over the last few decades that really serves to discourage people when it comes to that notion. But it is not that government cannot do things. Uh, It is that a lot of the people in government will not do those things. And when we get new representation in the Congress, we're going to show that these things that are important, that are concrete, that you feel in your everyday life, where you live and how you pay your bills and how your children are educated and if you feel safe, we can actually change that stuff. So I would say to the voter, don't give up. Hope with me one more election and let's do this and start to turn the tide. If people like what they heard today, how can they get involved and support the campaign? I really hope that folks do get involved. We cannot do this without your support. People can go to electchrisbutler.com. That's electchrisbutler.com and connect with the campaign there. You can make a contribution. You can sign up to volunteer and just get very involved with the campaign. You can also find us on social media on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can look us up there, but you can connect to all of that stuff if you go to the website, electchrisbutler.com. Chris, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can also support the show by sharing our episodes on social media or joining the party at solidarity-party.org.